Good morning, ladies. So good to see all your faces. I've, as she said, I've been around habits for a while, and I've taught for a ha at habits for a while, but this is probably the hardest lecture I ever put together. So if you felt like this was a hard lesson, welcome. <laughs> I felt the same way. So <clears throat> anyway, I hope you listened to Mimi, even though you weren't here last week. Rhoda sent out the link. But each lesson has been like a puzzle piece in a jigsaw puzzle to try to see what's going on. And if you remember, First and Second Samuel were never two books in the beginning. It was one long letter that was written. And um, this week, even though it's just chapter 19 and 20, there's still four more chapters. This is the end of the historical narrative. So when you start doing next week's lesson, know that this is out of chronological order. And Lynn will be teaching us next week, and it'll be... <clears throat> episodes of what had happened in the past, and then the author sums it up in a beautiful way. So um, that's what we're doing. And I don't know about you, but how many times this year have we heard words that are familial as we go through First and Second Samuel? Fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, half-brothers, cousins. And I don't know about you, but in my group, most of our applications and... Um, prayer request had to do with people in our own families. A lot of you have shared that. So, as I started really reasoning like this, the, I thought about these physical relationships which vividly displayed the good, the bad, the ugly, and sometimes have we seen in the life of the people the unimaginable. Well, as we started this week, we know it's more war. There's been plenty of war going on. Never in my wildest imagined did I think that I could turn on my own TV until the last 10 days and see war played out. No different than then. With mercenaries, with someone battling to take over someone else's kingdom. It's been hard, hasn't it, to watch so these last nine months together, we've studied and we've studied, and I'm hoping this week I can kind of sum up what we've done. Um, as I started to study a few months ago, I was just like, I'm sorry, let me just pray. Father, there's so much on my mind and so much I want to pour out. Let these be your words. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the idea of family has been going through my mind, in other words. And so I turned on um, my computer on Monday when I was sitting to, up, ready to start, and this is what I saw on my screen. Ukraine, with placards and tears, Poles are greeting refugees like family. This is in the main ticket hall, where people who have traveled long distances are holding up bits of paper and cardboard with scribbled signs. Hostile for eight in a family. I can take a family to, from, to Warsaw. There's 40 places available on a bus to Germany. Schimmelschel is the name of this country, is an obvious focal point because it's on the main line across the border with trains coming in from Lviv in the west of Ukraine. They're listed on their rivals boards, but there's no certainty anymore about the timetable. And then I saw this. This is a woman named Olga, 
There is one bright smile along this station. It's Olga's. She's Ukrainian, has been living in Germany for years, traveling here from Heidelberg to pick up her mother. With a Ukrainian flag draped around her shoulders, she's holding up a sign offering rides to other arrivals too. I want to tell you that for my family, only my mother is prepared to leave Ukraine. Everyone else is staying to defend the country. It's made me think of a book that someone gave me years ago called What is a Family? And you'll see I have a mobile up here. I don't know if you can see it, but this is my object lesson. It's a mobile. And here's a quote. It's on your lecture notes. A family is an intricate mobile made up of human personalities, an artwork that takes years, even generations, to produce, but which is never finished. A family that is affecting each other emotionally, spiritually, physically, and psychologically. A family with roots in the past and stretching out to the future. A family that has ups and downs, arguments, sorrows. There's no perfect family as we have been studying this year. But God won't. God's word points us to what the family of God is becoming. So as we finish, as we look at this narrative, I'm asking the Lord to help us see what does this mean today? What, how do we apply this today? I never dreamed that we would be seeing the war-torn company, countries that we're seeing. Do you remember, let's kind of do a review. So if you look on your lecture notes, I'm going to take you through. Do you remember when we first started? Okay, we started with Hannah, a barren woman who prayed to have a son. And then she dedicated this son to the Lord. He was adopted in sorts to Eli the priest. Samuel grew to be the last judge of Israel. When he was old, the elder said to him, You are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And when Samuel prayed to the Lord, the Lord said, Obey the voice of the people, for they have not rejected you but me. Samuel was the one who anointed Saul and David to be kings over Israel. Chapter after chapter in First and Second Samuel, we have seen in these royal families, fathers against sons, kings against kings, Saul even pursuing and trying to kill David so he wouldn't become king. We have watched from the beginning, as Mimi pointed out in her lecture last week, people's hearts that were trusting God or trusting in themselves. And each week, we've been aware of a sovereign God who orchestrates every person and every deal, detail according to his plan. We've watched the kingdom under Saul that ended in Saul's death. And when God removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And throughout our study of 2 Samuel, we are aware week after week of God's covenant that he made to David. And um, it's up there, you can see it now. This is what's been the thread or the string that's taken us through this narrative. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. But as Mimi pointed out last week, 
David's sons are falling fast, as we saw last week with Absalom. He was, being, he was third in the line for the throne, and now he's dead. So that's where we start our narrative today. So if you would open your Bible or turn on your device to 2 Samuel, uh, that would be great. We need to look where we're coming from in context. So I'd like you to look at chapter 18 first at the end. And I just wanted to point out to you uh, a few things that it says there. Okay, so if you look at verse 18, 24. Now David was sitting between the gates. And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes, he looked. He saw a man running alone. And then if you skip down farther, they came to him. He's aware that Absalom is dead. And then you look at verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, my son, my son. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. So I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be a worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now, and we saw lots of it, didn't we? Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came to the king. Well, if you turn now to the back of your lecture notes, what was hard for me in this lesson was to figure out who's on first. Where is this happening, and who's happening, and where is this all moving backwards to? And so I've made this, so I'm just going to kind of walk you through it as we go. So if you look, you'll see at the, in, right in the middle, Mahanaman. And this is the place where David waited for the news of Absalom. This is where he grieves and where he's rebuked by Joab. Well, I thought it was interesting. Interesting, because it said he waited at the gate, he mourned above the gate, and then finally sat in the gate. That was kind of a theme that went through. Well, when I looked it up and thought, what did it mean back there? I read that to modern ears, the description in the gate, gate sounds curious. 
But in biblical times, a gate or gates was not just a passageway through the defensive wall surrounding the city. It was typically a massive and often complex structure consisting of an outer gate and an inner one providing a second line of defense with a space in between. It was this space between these gates, sometimes just a corridor or recessed guard rooms, sometimes a more spacious courtyard that the Bible calls in the gates. Much life took place within that gate area based on biblical, and I couldn't find a picture of one, sorry. <laughs> Probably didn't have one then. Based on biblical references and archaeological finds, that space served as a combination of town hall, ad hoc law court, marketplace, and a park bench. It was in the city gate through which people constantly flowed that arrangements were verbally sealed in the presence of witnesses, a necessity in an era before the written contract. Allegiance was restored just by the king sitting there. So David was sitting between the two gates waiting for news. When he received it, he went up to the chamber above the gate to weep and mourn for his son. Mind you, not to weep for the 20,000 people that were killed. Not to rejoice that the kingship was resorted to, but to have a pity party almost for his son. Tim Chester in his commentary on 2 Samuel notes, this is a bitter victory. Mourned rather than celebrated. In 2 Samuel 12, 19, we had seen David refuse to grieve for a dead son. Now he cannot be consoled. The difference is that David expected the former son to rise again, but he harbors no such hopes for the rebellious Absalom. It's very sobering to think about that. But what I really noticed in this, too, is that David allowed his own grief to get in the way of leading his country and being thankful that his nation had been saved. Have you ever done the same? We all over grieve over death, and we should. Many of you may have lost sons or husbands or family members. We need to grieve over them. But do you and I allow our grief or hard circumstances to paralyze us from attending to the needs to those we love and are close to us? Paralyze us maybe mentally, emotionally? Well, that was one thing that Joab did. He came and rebuked him. I hope you have a friend like that. I do. I have a friend once when I was really stewing, and I went to her and I said, what do you think? I keep talking about it. She goes, it's sin. <laughs> it's sin. And so I hope you have a friend that can pull you back in some of these times. All right, so the next location on your map would be Jordan. It said, David came back to the Jordan. So we don't know where. Somewhere along the Jordan, he came back. And here's what's happened, all these things that happened in, the, in our story. Shimei and a thousand men crossed the ford to meet David. Shimei falls down before the king and asks for forgiveness there. Mephibosheth tells of Ziba's deceit, and David divides the land between them. Now, the commentators that I read believe that David probably wasn't quite sure who was telling the truth, and that's why he divided the land in two. There's other beliefs that say it reflects something in Judges, but whatever, he divided the land into right in that area. And then Barzillai also comes down from Rogalim 
and escorts the king over the Jordan. All that happened in that one section of the Jordan. Now remember who Barzillai was. He had come to the aid of David when he was fleeing when Absalom in 1724, and he brought him beds, basins, earthen vessels, and grains. Have you seen those images on the television lately? The other day I watched the news and there was Samaritan's Purse with these airplanes and provisions that they were taking by thousands into the areas in Ukraine that have been damaged. I never dreamed we'd see something like that. That's kind of, Barzillai was, he was, David was fleeing, Barzillai and the others helped do that. They brought provisions to him. All right, now Gilgal, look farther down. You can see Gilgal. This is where the men of Judah, half of Israel, escort David back over the Jordan to Gilgal. Israel and Judah start arguing over who brought David across. Kind of sound like toddlers, didn't it? We had a good conversation about that yesterday at leaders' meeting. Judah says, the king is our close relative. But then they followed the king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And Israel's arguing, but we have ten shares in the king. And this will come to play later. So then, the last place I want you to look is way at the top of the map. I had to type it in myself. I couldn't find one. But it's called Abelbeck Meha. At the top of the map, and it's 25 miles, they say, uh, northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Real place. <laughs> and this is where Sheba and the Israel rebel to. It's where Sheba is killed, and Jobab and Israel return to Jerusalem. And I'll let you get into the details of that story in your group. So the ESV commentary says that Sheba's rebellion is directly connected with the split within the nation, seen in verses 41 to 43. It does not seem to have gained any support outside of his own plan, but the feeling that the king was not treating them well seemed to have lingered among the northern tribes, then increased under Solomon, and finally caused the nations to split in two in 1 Kings. Okay, then finally, Jerusalem. Look over then to your left, and you will see Jerusalem. This is where King David arrives at home, names his officials, and order is restored. These are God's people in God's place again under God's rule after all this chaos. What I noted and I wanted to point out to you was what I saw along the way. Forgiveness and grace. We've seen that all along, haven't we? We saw David forgive, really in his heart, Absalom. He's grieving for Absalom and said, I'd rather it would be him than his own son. He forgave Shimei, who had cursed and stoned him. In 2 Samuel 19.20, if you look in your Bible, it says, For your servant knows I have sinned. Well, then David says he would not put anyone to death on this day. For he acknowledged, do I not know that I am this day king of, over Israel on this day? However, I find it interesting that later in 1 Kings 2, David tells Solomon to kill Shimei for cursing him. So justice was done. Restoration. One of my favorite parts of this lesson was the concubines. Read first Sam, 2 Samuel 20, verse 3. 
And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines who he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for him them, but he did not go into them again. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. He restored them. He protected them. Why did he do this? Was it to make up for a sin? Was it because of Absalom's terrible sin? Did he feel guilty knowing what Absalom had done to them and the whole side of Israel? We don't know. But these women were protected and provided for the rest of their lives. Well, another contrast that I've seen as we've studied are worthless examples and wise examples. And if you see in 20 verse 1, it says, there happened to be a worthless man <laughs> whose name was Sheba, the son of Gagai. So we see Sheba. He started a rebellion but ended up dead, didn't he? Well, you know, what, do you, what about Joab? What do you think about Joab? Here we saw him just give wife counsel, counsel, but what about him? We know what he's done through this. Do you think he was worthless or wise? <laughs> he was fiercely loyal to David, but violently disobedient, as we have seen even in this lesson. Well, time will tell, for when David is old and about to die, here's what he says to Solomon, his son. 1 Kings 2, 5 to 9. Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom. Do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Gone. <laughs> he was gone, and so was Shimei in later days. Another thing I've been, we've had lessons about the way some women were so terribly mistreated. Uh, but we've also heard of godly women, too. I think back again of Hannah, who dedicated her son to the Lord as an offering. And then she went and left and lived with uh, Eli in the, in the temple. I think of Abigail, who used wisdom to intervene when her city was threatened because of her husband Nabal, who was also called a worthless man. She not only saved her city, but David took her as his wife. So the wise woman of Babel, Beth Mecca, used reason. And she said, I am one of those who is peaceable and faithful in Israel. And in order to save the entire city, she agreed to convince them in her wisdom to give them Sheba's head. Notice that twice the word wisdom is used. And she was peaceable and faithful. I admit this is an area I continue to fight in my own life. I think all many times we want to repay evil for evil. Here she has this whole force coming. They build up this wall, and here she is there. How would you respond if you see all these men coming? It's hard to think about what you would do. I've had times in my life when it's been hard to deal with hard people, and you want to respond in an evil way. But what did it say that she did? She was peaceable 
am wise. At one time, I went to Eric Bobbitt. You guys met him a few weeks ago. He's a counselor here. And I was really having trouble with someone that was really close to me. And we'd kind of, a, not at war with each other, but we kind of parted ways. But we still had to see one another. And I went to Eric and I said, this is really hard. I just want to say all these mean things, but I can't. But I have to look at him and smile. And he told me the example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who during World War II, he was a Lutheran pastor, and he was arrested in concentration camps because of wanting Hitler gone. And during this time, he had this whole community of people he built up in Christ. And later, someone would say to him or reported back, how could you do this? How could you be there and be with these people that would spit on you and you'd watch people killed? And he said... I pictured the Lord Jesus Christ standing between me and whoever that was. And I said, I might not be able to do it myself, but I can do it through him, in him, and for him. And that has stuck with me. I don't know how many times you might be ready to explode, and I think, wait, let me picture Christ standing behind it, because I can do it through him. All right, so the kingdom's restored, and David writes down again, all his officers. And who do we see? Job at the top of the list. But when he comes in, he comes to the city dejected. There's no fair fanfare this time, no dancing in front like we saw before when he came in, no offerings or peace offerings before the Lord, and Joab is still in control of the army. I wonder, who do these people trust? Is this any different today? You can turn on one channel and then to the other one and you see an exact opposite picture. Who do we trust? What's your plumb line during these hard times? I am so thankful for God's word because when we go into it, we know that it's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He is the same every day. Yesterday, day, and tomorrow. That's where our truth needs to be. In his word. Well, Lord's covenant with David would be established forever has not been fulfilled. His kingdom has not been established forever. So who will this be? We didn't find the answer in the book of Samuel, did we? But 1 Kings and 2 Kings will not only show us who's the next king, but they'll tell us about what happened. The arguing that we saw this week between Israel and Judah foreshadowed what would eventually happen to the nation of Israel. I think you see up here, here is the divided kingdom that we're going to see happen. This happened after um, Solomon was king. Northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, just like we saw in this lesson, they were arguing and fighting. And so, from many generations, I think there were 30 kings then who sat on the throne, and they all died. The northern and the southern tribe. Those are all chronicled first, through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which we're not studying. But that's what happens. We see generations after generation of kings who ruled and died. Was Nathan's prophecy ever to come true? Well, after 400 silent years of no kings, we see Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. And this is the lineage that you see of the tribe of Judah, of which Jesus was part of. This tribe of Judah, the faithful tribe. And we see them referring to this. Remember when all the men of Judah answered the men, the king is our close relative? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. He was called a lion cub when Jacob dedicated them. And then these are names. There are many more names you'll see if you look at Matthew 1. But we'll see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Boaz, and noted by Rahab, a prostitute in his lineage. We see Ruth, and then in this, in Samuel, Jesse's son David, Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, not by Bathsheba, but by the wife of Uriah, honoring that terrible sin. And then Joseph, husband of Mary, and Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, 42 generations from Abraham. But God promised he'd send a savior forever. So, Christ's family today. Last week was Ash Wednesday. I saw people with their ashes when I went in the grocery. This is the time of 40 days leading up to Easter, an event where another king entered into Jerusalem. A king riding on a donkey welcomed by many to great fanfare, who said, my kingdom is not of this, this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And he doesn't sit at the gate, but he is the gate. He says in John 7, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you all who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This hasn't happened yet. He hasn't gathered all the nations to come. It's like we say in our booklet, they mention every few weeks, we're, at the, we're almost, but not yet. So we're part of his kingdom, but it's not fully here yet when he will come in and usher us all in. And we have a new family. So who is this family? Remember when this, the, uh, Jesus' mother and brothers wanted to see him and they, he wouldn't go out, and the disciples said, why won't you go out? And he said, you know who are my mother and father and my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And who is this? For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother in every nation, in every people. Well, of three years ago, I met two girls from the Ukraine. I was there for the European Leadership Forum, and they said to me, 
I need, we need to know the Bible. We don't have any older believers in our life ever since communism. So for the last three years, we've been doing a Bible study, oh, once or twice a month, and I've grown to love these girls. They live in Kiev. And so uh, I wanted to give you an update of what's going on with them. So this is um, Victoria, and she's been texting me every day. And... Um, she said, the Polish people are so warm-hearted towards us, I will never forget how they accepted my people. She had to get out on a train. She's now in Warsaw. This is a picture of her in Warsaw. And you can't see it probably up close, but behind it is tons and tons of provisions. Maybe some of the things I saw go over on Samaritan's Purse. But there it is. There's water. There's bedding. She showed me all the cots that they are. And then this next slide, this is Nadia. She wrote this. I zoomed with her Monday, and um, she was just getting ready to leave her home. She lived by Chernobyl. And so she was just getting ready to leave, and she said, my mom and dad won't leave me, but I, I need to go. So she wrote me this yesterday. Patterday, Patty, yesterday I came to Poland. I am with our team now. We are actively working helping Ukrainians with humanitarian aids through different channels, through different European countries. I am very glad to be here. I pray that God can use me here. I am not qualified in these many things, but not everybody knows English. So here they are, taking, being that nation, all nations, serving and loving each other. We are a royal family. We're all part of this. Peter said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we have a new family, and we also have a new heart. Remember how David was called a man after God's own heart? We have a new heart. In Ezekiel, the new covenant of the blood, which is Jesus, said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A new community of believers. We're all sisters and brothers in Christ. Any of those who do the will of the Father, whether we're here in other nations, that that's what we do. So, to end with my mobile up here, Edith Schaefer's definition of a Christian family. A Christian family is a mobile, blown by the gentle breeze of the Holy Spirit. The mark of Christian families should be the demonstration of love in the day-by-day -day mundane circumstances of life, respecting one another with God's word as a plumb line for forgiveness, repentance, and starting over. A family for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, a mobile strung together with invisible threads, knowing always that if a thread wears thin and sags, there is help to be had from the expert, the father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whole family. Well, a few months ago, Rhoda hold, held this up for you to see. This was the habits curriculum that was translated into Lithuanian. And um, I had an email from the, one of the women in this yesterday, because I'd asked her, how are you doing? And I want you to read 
God's word in action. She said, I don't have a picture of her. The time we live in is very uncertain. Our hearts break seeing the war in Ukraine. Nothing new under the sun. Satan is a liar and destroyer. But Jesus came to destroy the deeds of evil. That's our greatest hope. We are continually praying at school, at church, at homes for Ukrainian people. Open our homes for refugees. Volunteering in refugee centers. Not so many people choose to come to Lithuania because of Putin's threat to destroy the Baltic countries as well. It's very strange, but we are also preparing emergency bags packed with some food and most needed things just in case if we need to evacuate very quickly. At such moments, I feel like I'm in a dream, not real life. Hopefully it will remain only a good exercise, but never real experience. And then, here's how she ended. Among my family, friends, and colleagues, there is no panic. It is a very good time to share the gospel, to speak about the value of the soul and great love and rescue plan of Jesus. God's people in God's places until he comes again. Well, in closing, I want us to pray together. And so I've got two prayers I want us to pray that you probably are familiar with. Um, for those struggling, whoever they are, we all are part of God's family, no matter what's going on in war-torn areas. Maybe you have a war-torn area in your own home. But this prayer from Paul and then the Lord's Prayer is what I want us to end with together. And then you can sit down if you want and... Um, we're going to listen to a song, or you can sing to it. So if we put up the first prayer, would you stand? And let's pray these two prayers that are together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell through faith. And of course, this prayer that Jesus taught us all to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And in the book of Revelation 5.5, 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. One day he will do this. So you can sit and just listen. It, pretty much this song sums up our lesson. And then you can go to your groups. Do you know that?